Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Toslieb. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And in today's episode, we will be speaking with professors Michael Adorjan and Rosemary Richardelli about research ethics and criminology. Michael Adorjan is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Calgary and fellow with the Center of Criminology at the University of Hong Kong. His research and teaching focus on youth, crime, and cyber risk, fear of crime, and perceptions of police. He is currently a principal investigator on a social sciences and humanities research council-funded insight development grant examining youth and cyber risk in Canada. Rose Richardelli is professor of sociology, the coordinator for criminology, and co-coordinator for police studies at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Elected to the Royal Society of Canada, she is also the vice chair of the RCNAC for the Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment. Rose's research is centered on evolving understandings of gender, vulnerabilities, risk, and experiences and issues within different facets of the criminal justice system. Beyond her work on the realities of penal living and community reentry for federally incarcerated men in Canada, her current work includes a focus on the experiences of correctional officers and police officers, given the potential for compromised psychological, physical, and social health inherent to the occupations. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike and Rose. We're excited to have you. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I'm echoing Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> So just a brief overview of what we'll be covering today. So we're going to be talking about research ethics. And so we'll ask Mike and Rose a few general questions about research ethics. Then we'll move into talking about a couple of book chapters that Mike and Rose were gracious enough to provide us with. We're going to talk a little bit about IRB. And then we'll talk some about a project that they're both currently working on and some of the ethics challenges that have come up with that project. And so with that being said, Jen, you can go ahead and take us into it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jose. So first off, starting with some pretty general questions for both of you, can you hit us with kind of the definition of research ethics and then elaborate on why it's important to take, you know, these research ethics and criminological research importantly or seriously? It's a good question. And one, when I first started thinking about it, I, I thought, what is the formal definition? Because, you know, you write so much about this thing and you'd write around it and, and you assume people understand, you know, what it is, what it, what it is about. In general, it involves norms for conducting research in a manner adhering to a code of conduct, moral principles, beliefs. It assumes that it relates to how participants are involved in, in the research. You know, it talks about inform, informing them about the research process, making sure that they're aware in most research protocols anyway, aware about what are the potential benefits of the research as well as the risks. And having that as a conscious, a consciously in your mind as a researcher, in the inception of a research project, from the point of an IRB or REB application, but also beyond that as well. I think if I'm going to take it and expand on what Mike is saying, it's important to take research ethics and CRIM seriously. And it's important to take all research ethics and doing any research, particularly with human subjects, seriously, of course. But in, in criminology, we're dealing with a range of different individuals with different degrees of vulnerability. And also, when we're doing our work, 
exposure to potentially psychologically traumatic events is sort of the norm. So we have to be aware of that when we're doing the research because it's our obligation as researchers. And it's near impossible to leave someone exactly as they were when we started an interview or a discussion of some sort. But the idea is that when we leave that environment, everyone should be in the same mental state as in the beginning. So it's important that we don't do damage in that sense. With criminological research, we're dealing with imprisoned persons or formerly imprisoned persons, vulnerable populations like sex workers, victims of violence, also those charged or convicted of white-collar crimes, those in organizational administrative positions, and basically ethical processes need to apply equally to anyone participating in the work. Yeah. So, you know, Rose, you, you mentioned that we inherently deal with vulnerable populations based on, on what we do a lot of the time. You know, what are some other sort of major or main ethical issues in this field that we should keep in mind when trying to come up with a research study? I think one of the things, well, it depends on what kind of research you're doing, right? So your, your ethical concerns are going to be what's going to arise in your ethics will vary depending on your methodology, right? So I'm going to talk more about qualitative research in that concept. And when we're, when we're looking at the main ethical issues, I think what we want to be really clear on is not just that we don't impact people negatively, but we also want to make sure that we're not impacting life trajectories or processes. And especially when we're doing work that's more ethnographic in nature, by being part of something, by participating, by being there, by talking to individuals, you're always you know, balancing the insider-outsider position and, and how you're going to frame, or be framed within that. And you're also going to have to recognize and be very attuned to the tensions around the impacts you're having on the individuals. When we go into these ethnographic type experiences as well, there's a real big challenge because people are not actively consenting to be part of your ethnography. It's a different kind of ethics and a different kind of process. So I'm thinking of an example in my head of when I did an ethnography in the summer of 2019. I was there and everyone around me knew who I was and why I was there. But I still, to this day, can't say for certain, for example, did in the ethnography, I was participating in a training program. So did the trainers I had, did they agree to have me in there or were they told I was supposed to be in there? And for all the recruits around me that I was participating with, I would lay witness to a lot of events that would happen to them personally in their personal lives. And they may agree and consent and be like, it's okay for you to be doing this. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these very changing moments in their lives are things that I should be reporting on or talking about or telling their story. Because consent is a very, it's a negotiated process that once you have it, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. You still have to be respectful of things that might be outside those boundaries and be respectful of the confidentiality and ensuring that people are, are their identities are not disclosed. Mike, what are you thinking of some of the main issues? There's a few. Again, I agree that it depends on the exact nature of the study. You might be working in a police or with a policing organization or a correctional organization where there are some, you know, some degrees of vetting. You know, you have the university review process, of course, that, that, that's involved, as well as the review processes germane to those organizations. Historically, and I know there are some, some questions that, that you may have about the, you know, the origins of research ethics boards and these sort of things. And 
and there's a chapter actually in, in our book that examines that by Mark Israel about the history of correctional research in the United States that would certainly not be allowed today. But there were ethical sign-offs on research that the processes, you know, didn't amount to. So for a particular example is the way that the research process is. You might have an informed consent and it might look like informed consent on paper, but if you have, let's say, a certain correctional organization or prison administration saying that there has to be a prison officer, a correctional officer there in during the interview, that may create certain dynamics. It may not, but you know, there may be some dynamics there that affect the interview. So issues of coercion, especially when you have the in, inside these so-called total institutions in the Goffmanian sense, where there may be coercion more subtly imposed, there may be conditions on participants for, you know, conditions on the probation or parole conditions and these sort of things. It may not be explicitly said, but, you know, those sort of things need to be taken into account. And there's a lot more awareness of that today. But it gets back to a point that I'm going to get back to a few times is that the idea that once you have a a rubber stamp of approval from an IRB does not mean that you don't have to think about ethics anymore. It's not. That's just the beginning of the process. And I think it's very important. Of course, there are issues with criminological research. There are examples of studies that, that are more covert studies. As Rose mentioned in the ethnography, most people will know perhaps who you are and some people may not. And, and there's degrees of freedom there. There are also studies, for example, people who posed or had a job as a bouncer, like, you know, you have a job at a nightclub or something like that. They got permission to do that. And yet their status as a researcher is covert. It's not aware. They're not known. And so criminological studies, there's covert studies in sociology and psych as well, but in criminology, the issues around covert research are really interesting to consider. And it always is, is weighing the benefits of the research to wider communities and, and wider contexts, not just the particular participants involved. But researcher safety is also an, an issue. It's often IRBs do place the focus, rightly so, on the participants involved in the research. But if you're dealing with gang members or danger, so-called dangerous populations, I think that it's important to spell these things out for IRBs to get the full context of, of studies involved as well. Rose mentioned some things about ethnographies and qualitative research. There's also issues in, from quantitative and, and online surveys as well. I do conduct qualitative research myself, so I'm not speaking from personal experience here. But there are some interesting dynamics with online surveys. For example, there may be just germane risks tied to a server locations for surveys. I mean, it may well be that online surveys, you're not quite clear if the surveys are in the United States, there may be certain implications for data privacy, privacy protections for participants, whereas the servers held in a different national context may may have different risks or benefits. And then that may change. Servers change on the dime, you know, a, a lot of the time. For online surveys, you know, it's very important to try to be clear about consent and to try to ascertain the target population. You know, sometimes surveys have, online surveys have a bit of a consent form at the beginning to read off. But there are issues about the medium itself of online surveys. So if if there's an honorarium promised for participants and they quit the survey early, it's often told they can quit at any time, just click off the box. How is that? How are they contacted? How is that honorarium given to participants? And some of of those issues are not germane, of course, to criminology, but they're important because the medium of online survey tools. Yeah, you just hit us with a lot of different points. And I want to go back to what you were saying at the beginning, how 
and this is something you talk about in the chapter that I read that's authored by you from the book that, you know, just because you have that rubber stamp, things can look way different on paper versus when you're in, you know, the situation, whether that's quantitative or qualitative research, yeah. I think. And I don't know if this is something that you recommend, but in one of the projects that I work on, we had this question of, you know, how how is the survey being or the research being told to our participants by the correctional officers? Because it seemed like they were being told different than we thought they were being told. And so like we actually ended up asking both sides, like, how is this being conveyed to you? And how are you conveying it to the people we're interested in interviewing and finding kind of this discrepancy. And so we ended up, you know, circling back and fixing it and it ended up increasing, you know, our participation rate. Mm. And so I think just like that was an interesting dynamic to experience because I hadn't experienced it at that point. And it kind of got into this weird ethical gray area that kind of felt ish like coercion, even though like it wasn't fully, but it kind of started to feel that way. I don't know if that's something that either of you have done where you've (laughs) tried to figure out how it's coming across to the participants. It's actually a significant problem when you're dealing with lower rates of literacy as well. Because what ends up happening, and I've been in this situation where someone will describe the study and talk about it and they'll get it wrong. Then you sit down with someone who signed the consent form but isn't actually literate. So they're anticipating one series of questions. Like I remember sitting down with someone who thought it was about their reentry when we were actually talking about their prison experiences. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a significant problem, but you don't want to be, you want to make sure that things are communicated clearly and correctly because that could have impacted participation. Yeah. I think it's particularly important to recognize like sometimes the populations we're dealing with do have higher literacy challenges. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I mean, those are really good points. Sometimes the institutional on submission systems, you know, where you put together the applications do have specified sections for intermediate, whether there's an intermediary involved and how that intermediary is to be involved. and, And you need to elaborate on that. A lot of the times the ideal scenario would be, you know, an intermediary may help recruitment, but they have no ultimate knowledge of who ends up participating. Or if they do, then there, there needs to be that explicitly stated in the consent form. There are also tools online about pitching things at people's level, especially research with young people. And it doesn't need to be, there's oral options for oral consent, of course, for people with problems with literacy, but also for young people. I'm guilty as charged about writing up a letter of introduction to research that sounds like it was, you know, written in in some archaic sort of language that's uh, epistemological frameworks and the rest of this stuff. Like, you know, it's not easily, easily communicated. And and there are tools online that can actually check for the level, quote unquote, for who you're Mm -hmm. pitching it to. So those things are very important to consider. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think, Jen, what you're, what you're getting at is, this very point that, you know, ethics is going to be with you through, throughout the process, including when the project is, you know, the budget's done and the project has concluded and nobody necessarily has raised a complaint about the project. There still may be issues about clarity, transmitting, communicating with participants. And it's always, I think, a safe bet to reach out and talk with participants. Like, was this clear? Do you need, you know, how was this conveyed? And also there's always options for modifications to an ethics protocol. 
mm-hmm. and changing those depending on the nature of the study. So all of those things link up to what I what I call the ethical imagination, right? In this chapter that I wrote, I'm inspired by C. Wright Mills. All right. So our next question is kind of so like broadly speaking, what are some of the most common ways that researchers can cross ethical lines, whether, you know, they're meaning to or whether it's completely accidental? I think one of the places where researchers may cross ethical lines unintentionally is in recruitment. I think that's kind of one of the most challenging. So, for example, my institution does not allow snowball sampling. So you can't reach out to people in terms of it. So, and I actually was in a debate just a couple of weeks ago because of one particular study with my ethics board where I didn't know what to do. We couldn't advertise the study except through the means that we said, like through listservs. When we talk to people, are we not allowed to tell them about the study? Like it seems like a really fine line in terms of what procedure determines as correct and incorrect. And I found this movement of not allowing snowball sampling to happen is really impacting more the graduate students than anyone else because that's where how a lot of people build their samples. But in terms of broadly speaking to it, I do think probably one of the most significant places, like even kind of too many follow-up emails to get people to participate could be breaching our ethical lines. Excuse me. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think what I do in terms of, you know, outreach for participants, if it's an initial contact, a cold call or something would be, you know, to reach out about a letter of information about the study that was vetted through a research ethics board. And maybe one follow up at most, you know, with that. And, and I recognize, especially, you know, these days, people are, are very busy and pulled in so many different directions and things like that. And it is interesting, though, that sometimes the variation, I guess this is going off topic a bit, but the variation on research ethics boards in terms of, you know, what's permitted or not, I should, I'll be fine to go on the record to say I've done snowball recruitment protocols that, you know, sail through an ethics process. So it is interesting, the different temperatures there in terms of what's permitted and not. But certainly, you know, just some of the general issues, I think I might have mentioned a couple already, just not updating or assuming that you've got the sign off and then not updating based upon, you know, substantial changes. Sometimes there are, you know, very minor maybe alterations that still require modification just to make sure that you're covered, quote unquote, in terms of the IRB, but also to make sure that that's conveyed to participants. So updating with amendments, you know, I think that those those are some things that are very important. You know, I think that there's a lot of work now about knowledge exchange and giving back to communities, especially research with Indigenous populations. And I think that those are issues that I think are, are new, is relatively new in criminology research and sociology in general general about how not to just parachute into a community parachute in quote unquote collect data go back write up a bunch of journals and you know that's it right it's it it's more about you know trying to give back to communities and you know and following through on that so those sort of things you know post-colonial approaches to research are very interesting you know to consider you know how those processes take place and how they are or are not commensurate with current IRB protocols and processes. I mean, these are these are very complicated issues, and I know a little bit beyond the scope of what we're looking at here today. But these are certainly some of the challenges I think as we're going forward into the next few years. Actually, like to just continue on, Mike was saying. I think one of the ethical issues that we never really consider in doing research, and it's not just criminological criminological research, but also the ethics around knowledge mobilization. 
So it's one thing you write your paper, you, you know, ideal practice you would think would be send it back to the persons who, you know, oversaw the partner organization that you were working with and give them a chance to look at it. But we don't really talk about what happens when the research you're trying to mobilize is not research that anyone wants to hear about, right? It becomes quite difficult and taxing and, and it becomes more challenging discussions. And there's such a push now to mobilize our research that there's a lot of pressure placed on that. So sometimes, you know, our, our intention and the work that we're doing isn't going to be received well. And there's also the opportunity for our words to be quoted in ways that may defy the meaning or the argument we're trying to present. And I think those are issues that are also ethical, but that don't receive the same degree of consideration. Another place where I think research can change is often we start off just studying one thing and our research, especially in qualitative research, can reveal other challenges. And when you're working with a partnered organization, you may have permission to do the research within the specific topic, but not necessarily where your research is bringing you. So that becomes a very balance, like a very difficult balancing act to stay true to the study parameters while still stay true to the voices of the participants. Yeah, this discussion has got me thinking about some of the work that I'm doing with David in Denver, especially, so one, we just, David and I just submitted a paper for review and I used snowball sampling for that paper. And it, you know, I just, like it never occurred to me that that, that might be something to think about. You know, just, I've just always known like, oh, you can ask people if they know people that might want to participate. Yeah. And then I think the other thing was, so it wasn't with, so this was with organizations. So these were people that work in, in different agencies. And I don't know if you have any experience where you might view them a little differently than say, if I was doing snowballing with gang members and not, people that are, you know, working professionally in an agency. I guess it's, it's that's something that we should also, you know, keep in mind that just because they're not, you know, what we typically think of as a vulnerable population, that we shouldn't sort of just assume that they're going to be okay. A hundred percent. And then the other thing, you know, with qualitative work is, you know, like you mentioned, things can change and they can change pretty quickly. So when COVID hit last year, my qualitative work got shut down for a few months because of it. And so we sort of regrouped and we decided, okay, we're going to now do research on how COVID is impacting these agencies that, that we're working with. But then we had to sort of, you know, submit IRB amendments and then IRB was like, okay, so you're going to now study COVID. What are some of the, the implications of this? And then we had to come up with like a new consent form for them because it wasn't in our original proposal. And so I had to, you know, I had to, and because I was the one sort of spearheading this effort, I had to, you know, really think through of what does my consent form need to say and what are some of the potential implications that these questions may have on them and their organization and how can I sort of, you know, keep them safe because, you know, their anonymity is my top priority when we're coming up with these questions. Of course, right? Especially because there's risk if it's breached. Right. It's like if someone like really disagrees with new COVID protocols, like I don't want them, I don't want that to then, you know, sort of backfire on them because they were that, you know, I told them that they could be honest with me and that I would 
make sure that they stay confidential. So, you know, even though they're like, a, you know, like this quote unquote vulnerable population, there's still some dangers for them by just answering my questions. Yeah, there's so many, there's a number of angles there, Jose, that, uh, <laughs> that we, can, we can explore, certainly. One is the question of, of snowball sampling within organizations versus, let's say, you know, members of a gang. I mean, certainly there are, there are different, you know, levels of, in, in terms of hierarchies and stuff like that that might be, be relevant to a snowball sample a dynamic within even a gang. I mean, there may be some sort of dynamics there in terms of power dynamics and things like that of who participates and not. Certainly it applies to organizations. I mean, the idea there is if you do have an intermediary at an organization that's, you know, disseminating research information about your research, there are, for the consent forms that I've produced in, in those sort of contexts, whether myself or graduate students, there's a line in there normally about the fact that your participation will have no Im impact on your employment at this institution or organization or will not impinge upon your you know, your academic track record, if it's with a teacher recruiting students or, you know, so those sort of lines need, if they're explicit in the application, help to make it clear to those who are who are sending information out recruiting, as well as the, those participants about that. The question of vulnerability is an interesting one. We make assumptions about who's vulnerable all the time. And I think that sometimes, you know, people the people on research ethics boards are, you know, share these assumptions as we all do. And I think it, the emphasis really is on the applicant, you know, the either student or researcher or faculty member to make it clear that, you know, I've done research myself with sex workers in, in, in Hong Kong, where I expected the application to go to a full board review, not be go through a delegated, quote unquote, delegate process. And it did, which is fine. I mean, that made sense. But I just took the care to spell out these are some of the you know, issues in terms of distrust of police and these sort of things, spelling those sort of things out. The project was about perception of the police and being clear about that on the application. And sometimes you can get into a, a process and there are advantages to full board meetings where you can have the face-to-face. -face. So many times an application I read as a member of an IRB, REB, they call it in Canada, Research Ethics Board, you're reading a, an application on paper that comes across a certain way, but you meet the researchers, you meet the students, and you have a very positive impression where it was negative or negative impression where it was positive. Like, you know, sometimes it was a, it's a different dynamic when you meet in person and, and that full board review, it's a nerve wracking process. Is that the right way to put it? Just, you know, you're, you're nervous about this board and it's often like, you know, one of those, you know, scenes in Harry Potter where you're going into the Dumbledore castle with a board of wizards and, you know, trying to judge you. But the point is uh, that there's often an interaction or rapport where you can actually contextualize your research, right? And then get that, get that feedback that's important and convince others of that process as well. Yeah, there have even been situations that before like a full board, we've actually emailed someone like the contact person we had on our IRB here to be like, how do we address this question? Because we're not entirely sure here's what we're doing. Like, is that sufficient or do we need to change things? So yeah, I think, mm -hmm. Mike, I think you're right on that taking advantage of those, even if it's not face to face, but the communication with people is really helpful for your research. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, shall we move on to discussing some of your work in, in the book that you both have edited? So, lived experiences. So, the book is called Engaging in Ethics in International Criminological Research. And I can mention it, Mike and Rose are the editors of the book. The first edition was published in 2016. And 
the book explores the personal experiences that scholars have encountered when dealing with ethical dilemmas during their criminological research, both in the field and while writing up results for publication. And from here, we're going to sort of talk about two chapters, one that was written by Mike and one that was co-authored by Rose. And we'll discuss those before sort of moving on to our other topics. And so the first chapter will be Mike's and Jen, you can take that away as well. Okay. So this first chapter is called The Ethical Imagination, Reflections on Conducting Research in Hong Kong, which was really interesting to read. And so to kind of give our listeners an intro into this chapter, Mike, can you just kind of describe you know, what this project was, what the goal was, and then kind of your, like, your methodological approach to give listeners an understanding of the ethics we'll go into. For sure. You'd think that criminologists are interested in areas and populations of high crime, <laughs> the dynamics of societies, of cultures of control, and, and all the rest of it. And that's, that's fine. I mean, it's equally fascinating to go to a society, a place like Hong Kong, special administrative region of China, and find there's over 7 million people and they have a lower murder rate than many major cities, London and you know, Paris and Toronto even. So what's going on? And, you know, when I got, I got, I was there for four years and I was looking into these questions about what research has been conducted, you know, in terms of people's sense of perceptions of safety and security. And there's a relatively recent inclusion at the time of Hong Kong on the International Crime Victimization Survey, where police, the Hong Kong police force was rated very highly compared to other major world cities in terms of responding to crime, their efficacy in fighting crime, and very low rates of, of crime. And, and there's gender dynamics there as well, where women f- would feel safe walking you know, streets at night in areas that you might consider seedy or dangerous, you know, in other contexts. So what's going on there? Well, so I started looking at what research is there. And it, as, as always, you know, you, you gravitate towards what's not done. And there was all these official police surveys and statistics, international crime victimization surveys, but no qualitative research on people's perceptions from their experiences, from their attitudes towards these things. So the idea there, I started playing around a little bit with focus groups at the time because I was conducting either qualitative interviews at that point one-on-one, but I expanded to focus groups because they're really interesting dynamics between people that you as a researcher can ask questions, but then there's a dynamic of interaction between the groups themselves where they would 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 take you know different directions in, in sometimes spontaneous ways. And I wanted to get at people's reflections on safety and security in Hong Kong, including perceptions of police, but also crime and all of those things from their own vantage point. So the qualitative nature of that study emerged as something that I didn't see existing research in Hong Kong covering that ground in that way. So there's a couple of publications that I can you know, refer you to about that in terms of the findings, either in terms of we're drawing at one point on, on kind of a signal crimes or broken windows angles for people's perceptions of safety, and then another article on perceptions of police. So that was the kind of gist of that. Cool. Yeah, sounds like a really interesting project. And I didn't realize that actually about Hong Kong, that their crime rate isn't crazy high. Yeah. And four years, that's quite a long time to be there. So I'm sure you (laughs) learned a lot. It is and it isn't. I left right before the quote-unquote umbrella movement and protests in 2014, where I would have loved to stick around a little bit more just to get a little bit more direct research and communication with what was going on there. 
But yeah, no, it's a fascinating part of the world. It's, you know, a really interesting society. And, you know, just as from a criminological perspective alone, it offers different questions about conducting criminology outside the Anglo-Global North, conducting criminology in a comparative context, developing a a global kind of sociological imagination about those things. That led to my questions about insider-outsider, you know, dynamics that I wrote about in in that chapter. So, well, you did come across some ethical issues with the Human Research Ethics Committee at the University of Hong Kong, you know, such as having all letters of information and consent forms that had to be written in, in both English and then translated and acquiring informed consent and focus group research. So in, in this chapter, the main ethical issue that it, it seems you encountered in the field was related to your status as an outsider. And so first off, what is this insider-outsider problem in this type of research? Yeah, I think it's something that I considered more in the process of after the research to some degree, and to some degree, of course, during the actual application. And But it has to do not just with someone who is an expatriate in a foreign context and these sort of things. It could be dynamics of power, it could be related to age, could be related to gender, could be related to, you know, all these different things that if you're if you're actively reflexive about your position in relation to the perspective of participants, it allows the research process to to be engaged in a more ethical manner. Clearly, I would stand out as, you know, someone from either North America or somewhere. I don't necessarily come from a London accent. Some people identify me as, as, you know, either Canadian or somewhere in the States or something. I don't speak Cantonese, which is the, the dominant, you know, language in Hong Kong, except for a few, you know, bad words that students have, have taught me. So although you can get quite a lot of currency, quite a lot of social capital from introducing yourself and the bad words that you know, nevertheless, when it came to conducting the focus groups, it was very important that there was a team involved. So this really is the dynamic of having, you know, the insider-outsider, I should back up because I this is what I do. I go off on the tangents here, but the insider-outsider dynamics, I go back to Merton that talked about that notion of sometimes you are an insider at an organization. Let's say you're conducting research where you're, you have inside status, some sort of organizational power in terms of a hierarchy within the organization. That matters, right, in terms of your status as an insider. And often we feel as outsiders, if I'm approaching you know, the type of work that you're doing, Jose, I mean, I would be, you know, very much an outsider in terms of the populations that I'm recruiting. And there are advantages to that. Certainly, there's a sort of, as Alfred Schutz and others, you know, in terms of talked about having being a stranger, being an outsider does have advantages, you can see things that maybe insiders don't. But there's, there's often we're both insiders and outsiders, depending on on where we're positioned. So in this particular example, I was certainly an outsider by the by virtue of the fact that I'm a Canadian in Hong Kong. I'm an outsider by the fact that I don't speak the language. I'm an outsider by the fact that I'm not quite aware of all the social norms involved and the way that maybe, you know, there's certain ways to approach people for the research that that may not apply in other cultural contexts. So it was important to me to, first of all, have a co-investigator, Professor Maggie Lee at the University of Hong Kong that we collaborated with. And, you know, she can communicate in in Cantonese, of course, and then also help with designing the project in, in the best way going forward. But also the research assistants, you know, I think that... What I did not conduct the interviews, you know, we had the research assistant involved, who was a great help, invaluable to the project, was able to communicate very clearly. In some cases, in most cases, it did not present a problem. If I would, I would show up and introduce myself and I would say, Neho, just 
hello, greetings in, in Cantonese and talk about, again, it's a couple words that I knew and, and things like that. Try to make participants feel, you know, comfortable and explain the project. But the research assistant really just took the reins for that. And I would step back and, you know, go grab a bite to eat or something and then meet up later. And that's kind of the way that worked. So it's either my co-investigator and or the research assistant, and they could most clearly convey the research process. In some cases, and I only found this out subsequently, some participants didn't know what my status was, my role there. And so they recognized that I was a professor at the University of Hong Kong, but you know that might have generated some feelings of discomfort among participants. So I just kind of stepped back and I said, you know, this will be my research assistant will be, you know, taking the lead on this. And those were exceptional, really, cases anyway. Most of the times, there, w- there weren't a problem. But it was a really about the process involved and making sure that, that this was, you know, research that could be conveyed clearly. So you get informed consent, research where participants felt comfortable disclosing, you know, the information that they did. Very briefly, although you're talking about the Hong Kong study, I have also talked with teenagers about a variety of cyber risks in focus group research, where I am the older male researcher. And quite frankly, when you're talking to young people, you might as well be 21 and you're old there already, you know, TikTok, you know, what, what is that? So you're asking participants questions about sexting or, or cyberbullying and, and these sort of things. So gender, age, all of those sort of things are still factors that are important to work out and to consider when you're conducting the research. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you just touched on this, so I'll just kind of recap it and feel free to add anything to it. But mm-hmm. you talk about in your chapter that during kind of like these team debriefing sessions, that's when you became aware of these perceptions yeah. that some of the participants were having of you. And right. so you, you know, you kind of like changed up how you were dealing with kind of the interactions, which sounds like that's when you started to take more of this background mm-hmm. role during the focus groups. And that was, you know, part yeah. of this, this ethics discussion that we're talking about, right? Yeah, it's, where- it's a great example of where a modification would not necessarily be not be not be necessary in that case. There's no reason I would need to do a formal mod for that, whether I'm there or not, or that sort of thing. The basic idea was RAs were were going to be helping to conduct the group, my co-investigator. But just the small adjustments there I think went forward in a good way in terms of that research. It was a process that was, I think, the right decision at the time based on the information that I got. And it's also the decision to have those meetings, those debriefs. I mean, those are things that are outside an ethics protocol as well. But in the context of an outsider, so I was an insider in some ways, right? I had the university status as a researcher. There's certain social capital that comes from that, accrues from that. But having those debriefs, having knowledge about how the research is going, being received by the participants was was really important to have. And that is exactly the point that those things are outside of a formal ethics rubber stamp, you know, for protocol. Right. All right. So you term kind of this, or you coined this term, the ethical imagination. Can you discuss what that is and why it's helpful to use this ethical imagination throughout your research process? Yeah, it's definitely taken directly inspired by C. Wright Mill's sociological imagination that's trying to understand how our personal troubles, our problems, our even 
cognitive patterns, if you like, although that goes a little bit beyond them, are necessarily understood within a social context, a historical context, a, a context of power relations, politics, for example. And that wider sociological issue, like a very simple example, I would say is if I was experiencing unemployment, as that's a personal trouble for me, but if there's wider patterns of unemployment, that suggests some sort of wider structural patterning of these things. So applying to ethics, I thought there was an interesting way to discuss that, because we often think of ourselves, ethics is something that impinges on ourselves as researchers. We have a very relatively atomistic view at times about that, rather than, you know, the ripple effects that these things can have. And just trying to extend that and looking at the history that got us here, like, why are these protocols in place, having a sense of situating ourselves within a historical context, to look at why are we, you know, proceeding in in this way or that way with informed consent or covert research or otherwise, and also to try to think beyond the, the moment that we're in, in, in research, right, to think beyond, you know, as Rose talked about earlier, in terms of knowledge mobilization, in terms of community impact, although those things extend beyond the formal borders of a research protocol. That, I think, is the spirit, if you like, of what Mills was getting at in terms of sociological imagination. So I thought I kind of just borrowed his his lingo there with that. Yeah, it's cool. And it's a good idea to keep in mind throughout, like you said, both of you have referred mm-hmm. to this, the entire process, whether you're you know, thinking about it to begin with, all the way through IRB, through the research, and then while you're doing the write-ups, and even Rose, yeah. you were talking about, you know, how people are interpreting what you're writing, which is an interesting point. And how to deal with that is a whole nother thing that still trying to grapple with. But yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're going to so pivot a little bit and we're going to want to talk about the chapter that Rose, you, you co-authored. But then also there's a new project that both you and Mike are working on. Right. So before we get straight into the nitty gritty of it, can you give us a brief overview of this new project that you're working on? So I think it parallels a lot. So the chapter in the edited collection looks at working in partnership with the RCMP, which is our federal police service. And this new project that we're working on that Mike and I are actually both part of is working in partnership with Correctional Services Canada, as well as the local unions or the, the National Union of Canadian Correctional Officers. So it's, it's a very similar in scope in some ways in terms of the greater partnership, but it also has its own dynamics and dimensions that come with it. Right, okay. So we can weave them both in. As yeah. Well. I think the questions will lend themselves mm-hmm. well, well, well to that. So the first one, and you know, I think this was one of the one of the key takeaways of your chapter was this idea of doing, instead of doing research on the police or in the new study on, on correctional officers, is doing research with them, right? Can you tell so, us a little bit about this, like the difference between the two? No matter what, I'm an outsider to an organization. So we're always an outsider. So we're doing research in certain ways on specific topics. But there's different ways of doing research. And I think what really I'm trying to get at with that this differentiation is when you're doing research on the police, you're taking you you're taking your critical perspectives, et cetera, and you're examining what is happening within the policing side. When you're working with the police, when you're working in partnership, which requires a degree of like an appreciative inquiry taking from Liebling, where you take the time 
to actually try to understand the different actions in which the organization is taken. And then you try to understand how that impacts what is actually happening in the dy dynamics that emerge. So you're working with them because you understand their objectives and goals. It's not shaping your research in any way, but your point is not to just, you don't start at a point of criticism. You start at a point of understanding because often what I find is what happens. So you talk to in the police organization, for example, you'll be talking to constables and then you'll talk to some superintendents and then um, you'll talk to an inspector and then, you know, and you kind of work your way up until you're talking to the assistant commissioner, etc. And each person in each layer has a different perception of sort of what's happening. And when you take appreciative inquiry, you can understand even the disconnects within the organization and how different things get passed down and how that can impact, you know, those front-hand experiences that we're actually studying. So rather than working specifically on the individuals and just studying them as a specific group, you try to work with them in order to have a more fruitful study. And so are there any differences in, in ethics with these two approaches? I think ethically they require some of the same, but and this is where ethics, like our regulated ethics and our personal ethics kind of come together, right? So in that context, when you're taking an, if you're using an appreciative inquiry in the work you're doing and you're looking at it ethically, you're understanding all the different voices across the entire organization and then you're moving forward in that regard. In the same context, if you're doing research on the police, then you're only specifically focusing on the exact voices that constitute that sample. So the other things that are going on in that bigger picture are harder to conceptualize in the same way. And where it becomes ethically challenging is if you're not noticing kind of the systemic and these greater understandings that are happening and that are also driving your research findings, you're not necessarily giving a fair representation to the individuals you're actively studying. So I think, I think it does impact your ethics in many ways. So another key point that you talk about in this chapter and is pretty prevalent throughout a lot of research is this need for transparency and open communication, especially with the different agencies. And so was there ever a time in this project from the book or in the project that you're both working on right now where you felt like you needed to, instead of being super open with the agency or with your participants, that you needed to play some cards closer to the vest to avoid like impacting, you know, your study impacting the integrity of the research. So the one thing I can say when studies are this big, so the current study looking at correctional officer recruits and following them for 10 years post-deployment into prisons, so we're seeing how they change over time because of their career. We have about 400 participants in the study, and we're following them for a lengthy period of time, and we're working with different sections within the organization. So we're working with research, with human resources, with learning and development, we're in all these different things. And what's most important in this is complete transparency. Because if you try to hold any cards close and you're dealing with so many people in such a large study, it's best to just be very clear. And in that context, in Canada in particular, there's you'll hear if it's working with police, you'll hear about challenges of access. If it's working with corrections, they're kind of amplified, these challenges of access. And I'm sure it's the same everywhere, although we feel it's worse in our own in our places. But one of the things that I, I'm trying to do is to to continue the transparency, not just 
in terms of how I work with the organization, but how we put the research out there. So for the first time in my life, I've written a protocol paper and, you know, we've gone over this protocol paper and, you know, incorporate it and we'll, and we'll publish our protocol, our full protocol for the study. And this actually does a lot to manage this perception of lack of transparency, because not only is the study totally out there for everyone to criticize, but also it shows the transparency with the Correctional Service Organization in letting us be this transparent about what exactly we're doing. And I think that helps because if you keep it all, if you keep everything just out there and you can hear the criticism that comes back, it gives you opportunities to make modifications and changes and to highlight like the best ways forward. And it's difficult. It can get on your very last nerve. But at the same time, it's really important. And that transparency with the organization is so important because when you're doing research, especially qualitative research, as we talked about before, your process and what you intend to find and where you end up finding yourself focused can change slightly. So by keeping these, by keeping communication very open and everyone aware of what you're doing and what you're looking at, there's no surprises. Because the worst it would be, I think, I don't know, because I'm not an organization, but I think it would be really difficult to sort of, they said, okay, you're doing this work on mental health and suddenly everything that's coming out is everything else but mental health. So if you keep those lines of communication really open and we say, okay, we're finding that these policies are really impacting staff, therefore it's having a negative impact on mental health. So we're going to unpack these policies and see their impacts and everyone's aware of it. It doesn't look like there's any surprises. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if either of you have heard of kind of this like open science framework where you put, you know, your protocols, your methods, what you're looking at, your hypotheses all online and then you know, you can embargo it, but, you know, it's all there for people to see eventually. And I'm kind of curious, you know, I have never, Rose, I've never heard of someone writing a protocols paper, but I think, you know, I'm curious. I haven't heard of that either. Yeah. I'm kind of curious if, you know, that's where like research is kind of going, you know, trying to be more transparent and open about what you're doing. So make sure you're not crossing A, any ethical lines, but B, you're also being true to your participants and yourself and your research. It's a different way of doing research. Protocol papers are not easy to write. They're lengthy, complicated, and then also it doesn't make it easier. When I have a big project, I have more amendments to my ethics than anyone can even try to follow because every time I change anything or do anything or there's an adverse event, you have to report it back. So I think... I think it it does. It is a movement towards open science. I felt for this particular project because, so for example, in Canada, there's another project. It's called the Prison Transparency Project. And basically it opposes this idea that prisons are not transparent enough. So by putting out a protocol paper in this context, it's like, hey, here's what I'm doing. Yes, I have access. This is exactly what the study entails. This is the relationship. This is how I've stayed at arm's length. I think in doing that, we create a better space for transparency and I think it increases everyone's trust in the work that we're doing and it solidifies the partnership. So I think it's really important. It also makes ethical adherence a lot easier. So pulling from your study with the Mounted Police and then this new project, what would you say are the most critical issues that you should think about when trying to conduct this type of research? I think one of the biggest things that you need to be aware of, especially with these larger research projects, which have a lot of participants, you have to remember these people are even participating on their work time. So confidentiality is easy to ensure, but beyond that, it's a little bit more challenging and you don't want there to be any impacts. 
one of the things that I think becomes really important is when you have your methods and you know what you're doing, you stay very true to that and you support that in moving forward and you make sure everyone around you is supportive and on the same page. So that's very, very important in order to avoid any of the pitfalls. Because if you start allowing different things to start informing and shaping what you're already doing. So basically, I think it's important to kind of stand your ground with your projects, to be able to be fully aware, to be fully aware of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and to be able to explain that, to communicate it. And as long as you're able to communicate that and everyone understands and people feel they can ask questions and follow up, I think you can avoid a lot of those pitfalls. But no matter what, there are going to be challenges. With any research, there unexpected things happen and things, adverse events happen and you need to report them back and you need to find a way to manage those adverse events. Especially with a study with so many participants, there are a lot of adverse events and especially when we examine trauma. So we, we explicitly study exposure to trauma, experiences of trauma, impacts on trauma. And in the longitudinal study, we also do mental health screens. So not only do we screen, but we use a diagnostic screening tool as well in a what used to be a face-to-face -face interview. So we can actually give diagnoses of different mental disorders as they develop. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things that create potential ethical spaces that need to be very, very carefully negotiated. So, you know, one of the challenges we had is if we see someone is struggling significantly, what are the protocols that we have in place ethically in order to get those individuals help? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I pick on up from what Rhodes is saying is, is when you're choosing, we often have a vision of researchers as a lone wolf going out and doing these things independently. And lots of studies, of course, have co-investigators and in a, in a kind of a team. But selecting a team with a purpose, selecting a team with specific expertise in mind, and it goes back to that insider-outsider dynamic. I mean, speaking just for myself, I have no knowledge whatsoever about mental health screening from a clinical you know, background or, or expertise in that. But having people on board from that perspective that can identify those things. You know, we have a system in place where if I conduct an interview with a correctional officer, that is followed up with someone who does that clinical assessment. That's clinical assessment. And so that, you know, that helps follow through on our ethical commitments for the research and also recognizes that we can't do everything ourselves. So it's, we need that team in place situated the way it is in order to help mitigate, you know, any issues going forward, especially with, with a project that is focused really on primarily mental health for correctional officers. Yeah, I know we didn't end up doing this study, but we went through all of the IRB protocols and we had a pretty decent section on suicide and suicide ideation. And we had to you know, map out, you know, how we were going to deal with things as they came up, you know, what ethics, what ethical guidelines are we going to take if someone says A versus B? And so, yeah, those mm -hmm. mental health issues are, they're a lot to deal with, but they're really important too. Those are the exact protocols. What do we do if someone's yeah. actively suicidal? Right. right. If they have active ideation, a plan and, and, and an immediate intent. So, and, and in the study, it's really important. We know that death by suicide is quite high among correctional staff. My study is not immune to it. We still experience, just like the stats, we have a representative sample, so we have experienced a variety of different adverse events. And, you know, the ideal is, I wish we didn't have to learn from what happened, but to do our best to make sure it doesn't continue to happen. Right. Right. There's also this other ethical side that I sometimes, and it's part of doing research and it's not covered in the IRBs or anything else, but one of the things that we don't always think about is, so we do these interviews and you know you have 
a sample of about 400 and they're all talking about these traumatic exposures and all these things. Then we have transcribers who are just transcribing away and we don't know how it's impacting them and the researchers working with all this data. So it also, there's this vicarious impact that I think we have to be cognizant of with, with our research teams, but it, it's outside. It's kind of like what you were saying, how your IRB didn't really care about your safety in some contexts, right? It's, you know, how do we, how do we also make sure that we keep the mental health of the people working with us as optimal as possible. Yeah. Sides that I had never even thought because yeah, I've used transcribers and, you know, other people outside of the immediate interviewing research team to do data analysis and cleaning. Yeah. Lots of different components all working together. IRBs will definitely ask you about Sorry, Rose, at that, no, no. But the point about the transcribers, they will often have a separate confidentiality form for transcribers. And, and sometimes that's a requirement, depending on the nature of the study, in terms of do, you know, the transcribers are beholden to not disseminate the findings and things like that. But yeah, their mental health is not on that radar for mm-hmm. the nature of the study. And it falls again back to that point about ethical commitments, moral commitments that are not necessarily relevant for a modification or, or, or things like that, where the f- primary focus is, is on research participants. And rightfully so, it's just the blind spots that that creates in terms of yeah. others involved in the project. Right. Yeah, this is reminding me of when I was working as a transcriber for a project on hate crimes on trans people. And I was transcribing a focus group and I was like, oof, this is rough. Like, like yeah. I had to like pause it and just sort of walk away for a second because some of those stories were, they really made They're me... quite, the, the stories are colorful, right? Yeah. And a, a colleague of mine said it the other day, as criminologists, we tend to be pretty okay with that sort of stuff, but we don't know who, we don't know the scope of it on the team. And you might think you're okay hearing stuff, but you might not be, right? We can't determine how we react to things nor how other people react to what they hear. Yeah. And like, so... Like, you know, I do research mostly on gangs and I'm like completely fine doing research on gangs. But when I have to step into someone else's research area, like hate crimes, I'm like, this is kind of why I don't do hate crime research. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I have the stomach for it. Yeah. So we can go the full 15 and then it's all good. I mean, it's a it's a good conversation. And as I expect, it goes off in different directions, but important ones as well. You can't anticipate how you're going to receive information as you're getting it right so if if you're and you're dealing with hate you're dealing with things like violence maybe descriptions of violence might be a trigger for somebody but not another person i think it's you know there's an ethical considerations involved with ra training research assistant training in terms of understanding what the requirements are and confidentiality and so forth but also what you're going to potentially be exposed to you can't ultimately preempt that but you can just say hey look this is the general scope and then let the ra decide for themselves about that. So, I mean, those are good points, Jose, about, you know, it's important research and you want to have this Verstehen sort of empathetic understanding and empathy is not sympathy, and, but it, at the same time, it's very difficult to sometimes tease those things apart as well. So those are good points. Okay. Uh, so for this, this next question, given everything that we've talked about, and this goes out to both of you, can you maybe give us a few do's and don'ts when it comes to ethics and conducting research in criminology? Yeah, there's a couple of things that might overlap with what we've said. I mean, do treat ethics as a process. 
I think is is one takeaway point about that. Don't assume a signed consent form indicates a quote-unquote green light to neglect ethical processes or at least not actively consider them during the course of a research. Do consult in advance with an IRB or your supervisor regarding specific concerns. I think the best thing and another thing that's come up is the communication. The IRBs are often a number of people with a various range of expertise. The scope of your project probably falls within one of those. It may be also practical. I would say, if I'm going to be succinct about it, don't censor any potential idea, you know, really is what it comes down to. There are limitations. If you're an undergraduate student, if you're a master's student, you've got limited scope of time. If you're course-based, you know, sort of ethics, certainly in an undergraduate level or graduate level, there's going to be limits on what you can do. So if you're going to be planning to go into a prison conducting research, expect a lengthy process of approvals, modifications, et cetera, rejections, even, you know, needing to pivot to different sample altogether, right? I mean, the, these are sort of things, even at the graduate level, the PhD level, you're planning for four years, probably longer, about a certain ethics, you know, research process. You should be flexible in your design. Like if you want to, you know, interview, you know, sex offenders, you might might be open to pivoting to organizations that work with sex offenders as just one example. But nevertheless, I think it's important not to just say, ah, the IRB is going to censor this. I'm not going to do it because that ultimately engenders a culture of self-censorship, basically. And I think that that, in my experience, and, um, you know, I think that being transparent on an application, being as clear as you can about what you're doing, actively cogitating through what, what are the risks, what are the benefits, and putting those through help, you know, help you get success in doing what you want to do. Maybe not the exact thing you want to do, ultimately, but I think that it's really important that we not treat IRBs as the enemy of the research we wish to do, but in partnership, but we have to, you have to also step up and to communicate clearly and actively consider, you know, for at the University of Calgary, our research ethics protocol form, the very first screen is about research from the participants perspective. So actively considering the research from the participants perspective goes a heck of a long way to help justify rationalize the research process. And that's often not an application for funding where an, app, an application for research funding will have certain details in the methods, but abstain often sometimes even neglect capturing the research process from the perspective of participants themselves. So those are some general do's and don'ts that, that I had in mind. Yeah. I would agree. And then also, maybe if, if we take our perspective of the Research Ethics Board and all Research Ethics, bo- ethics Boards across the organizations and kind of look at them as less of an obstacle, but more of a, just a way of verifying our methodological processes to ensure that we're doing the least amount of harm possible, I think it makes it a more palatable experience. All right. So since we're kind of there, let's jump into you know the last couple of minutes that we have talking about IRBs or ethic review boards. So for people who aren't you know, familiar with these, they're committees that review and monitor research involving human subjects. They have the authority to approve, require modifications to research proposals or disapprove of research altogether. So overall, as both Mike and Rose have hinted at, you know, their goal is to ensure the protection of the rights and welfare of the subjects involved in the research. And so both of you have served on your respective universities' boards. Can you talk a little bit about who all, you know, is serving on these boards and then just briefly what each of your roles were? So on my ethics board, it's pretty pretty large and it has representation from all over the faculty and then different faculties within the university. 
And what I did in my role was I was reviewing ethics applications and, and putting out commentary for things that needed to be corrected for lack of a better word or thought out in some way or if there were any tensions or and then also we check for um, adherence to the regulations of the board so you know to be honest we check are, are the correct statements in or, or is the consent form following the template etc yeah yeah the boards are composed often of faculty members volunteering to be on on the boards in a range of expertise the ideal scenario is to have boards with sufficient numbers of expertise from qualitative and quantitative you know to different types of backgrounds so that so that there's enough members of the community are often invited as well explicitly so that there are community members reviewing applications a large part of it is is looking through delegated reviews meaning you know uh, reviews that come in that do not require a full board hearing the risks are relatively minimal compared to other projects but still require you know, checking through, a thorough check through. And there are, as Rose indicated, there are certain forms to go through to make sure all the the templates are are complete and these sort of things, but also sometimes clarification of certain things. And and often there was was a bit of a a back and forth. There are different boards too. I mean, keep in mind that there are health research ethics board for health studies, more clinical based research ethics boards. The ones that, that Rose and I have been involved with deal with human participants and research protocols involving human participants. And so, yeah, so I think that I would say a minimum number of applications come to a full board review. And that might be as board member, you're required to go to, you know, these often once a month, but sometimes once every couple months or so researchers come in and discuss the research. And then there's often a discussion basically about, about, you know, what are the issues involved and how are those, if any issues need to be resolved, how are they going to be resolved and so forth. And there's often like we have the protocols and procedures in place in the Canadian context, I'm sure is elsewhere that you can refer to in terms of, you know, everything from recruitment to dissemination to, you know, as I mentioned earlier, these new questions regarding online surveys and things like that. So, yeah. Big job. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's, it's quite time consuming, but it's often, it turns you on to what other people are doing yeah. in the faculty and outside of your faculty, actually. And there's often, I feel more engaged with what people are doing and the processes that they're engaged with. And they're often really very fruitful discussions, you know, in terms of there are retreats and, you know, conferences and, and things like that, where you get to learn different things about different aspects that you never even considered, right? This issue earlier that we brought up about RAs, that could be a retreat, that could be an issue or take up the majority of a discussion, in one of the board and maybe new protocols and, and processes will be put in place because of that discussion. Right. So you, you both have so touched on this, and I'm sure all four of us have heard or read the stories of, you know, the researchers that view review boards as sort of like a nuisance or like this roadblock that they have to get over or that they're, you know, bureaucratic and slow. But what would you say is sort of like your top recommendation for researchers when dealing with review boards, you know, to sort of avoid these negative experiences? Patience. That's <laughs> a good one, yeah. Yes, patience. Just wait it out and try to change the lens in which you interpret the feedback. Yeah. 
yeah, if, if you receive feedback that might strike you as not considering certain angles that you've considered, et cetera, it's like those emails that the advice is just to wait a couple of days before any sort of response and think it through to discuss things with your supervisor and, you know, and others. And often there are like, even with the general peer review process, there are sometimes comments that, you know, that you can just flat out disagree with or so forth. But overall, there's often good ideas there as well. My takeaway would be for research, approaching research ethics boards, of course, these are necessary from the Stanford prison experiment on, you know, the need for these things has become obviated and they're not going away. And I don't think they should. There's a, there's a role that they play. But if you think as participants, you place primarily primary attention on how the participants are going to be involved in the project. Think as the participants involved, how are they recruited? How are they communicated with? What are the processes in place going right through to the end of the study and even beyond the end of the study? That helps board members have uh, respect, I think, for applicants who go through the effort for doing those things and not just ticking boxes. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that is all the time that we have. Thank you so much to both of you for talking with us about this and providing, you know, your insight, personal experiences, and then recommendations, you know, do's and don'ts list, dealing with IRBs. These are big questions that we're dealing with. So it's an important conversation. Is there anything that either of you would like to plug, you know, papers coming out, any research ethics type things, et cetera? No, I just, I want to say thank you again for having us on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, it's been a pleasure. I could talk and I'm sure Rose is the same for another couple hours just on, on these things. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's what we love doing. And hopefully the advice is practical and applicable, right? Whether you're a graduate student or a full prof, I mean, these are important things to discuss. And thanks for your time and energy to put together the podcast. I'm sure it's going to be valued. Yeah, we hope so. And then our final question is where can people find you if they want to reach out, ask any questions about this or the research that each of you are doing? I'm best by email. So just through my email. Do you want me to say my email? It's up to you. We'll put it on our website too. So, okay. Yeah. Same myself. I'm always, I always welcome, you know, feedback, questions, comments, email is best. So just look for the link wherever that is. Okay. Perfect. Yep. On our website. And thank you to both of you again. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you really thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jose. Bye. Yeah, and best of luck to you for your research. Yeah, Thank you. nice to meet you both. If you ever need anything, you guys know how to get us. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I'm really yeah. excited to hear more about your corrections project. That sounds like a big undertaking, but a really important one. So keep monster. me in the loop. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.